corporate innovation is is time limited, and there's a sense of urgency to get results, but that um, it takes really five to seven years of direct investment to get there. And you don't have five to seven years. You have about an 18-month to, to 24-month clock. And here, here are a number of tricks that you could do to uh, accelerate your development so you could start showing results immediately. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Awesomeings Podcast, where we highlight people pursuing their definition of, you guessed it, awesome. So buckle up and get ready for some more success story adventures and failures from Kentucky's tech and entrepreneur community. Welcome into this episode of Awesomeings Podcast. I am, I'm just so thrilled. I'm sitting down with Somebody I truly admire, Jake, not from State Farm Miller in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> Hello. And no, I'm, I'm Drake with, Miller. You are Jake Drake Miller. Miller, that's right. I'm with the one and only, she graces you with her presence, aka her voice in the podcast, Liz Brown Evans, who is now a fan of the show Survivor. That's for another time. <laughs> Jake, fun fact, I love the show Survivor. Uh, yeah, that can be our, our after hours episode. But we are going to come to you talking about innovation Cool story is Jake Miller is one of our proud fellowship founders that we've had through our programming. I've gotten close with him on some of our summer retreat events. He's just a good guy. And uh, I sincerely mean that. And Liz and Jake have been going back and forth, really finding out why corporate innovation is so important, why the mindset of innovators is so crucial. And again, Liz is going to have total dominion over the show. I'm just here to be her hype person. And just let you guys know that you're in for a treat. So Liz, did, did you just say hot person? Uh, well, I said hype person. You said hype, hype person. I, okay, I thought you were bragging about yourself. But single ladies out there, if you haven't seen that. Garrett, he is a hot hype man. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, you, you said this wasn't on video, right? This <laughs> it's is, uh, not on video. I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah. We're in an enclosed room. The AC's off for the recording purposes. It is hot in here. And so I'm wearing wool socks and a Henley, and it's pretty toasty. Liz is wearing a bougie Madewell sweater she got from somewhere. So the, uh, the temperature in this room is actually rising. So your hot comment from my potential mess up is, is factual. As long as you don't start taking off uh, layers on our Zoom call, oh, gosh. I'll, I'll be okay. Wow. Yeah, that's like okay. an HR nightmare. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll tell our HR team, which is Keith McMahon, which is Keith McMahon, <laughs> which is problematic. <laughs> I'm Liz, guys. Thanks for having me back, Garrett. I keep I keep uh, manipulating him into letting me back on the show. Bamboozling she gives me him, chocolate. Duping him. I'm back on the show. Uh, hopefully, you guys know it by now. We're building Venture Labs, which is his Awesome Inc.'s newest program. Um, I say newest. We're two years into this thing, so I think I think we maybe deserve a se- it's our seasoned program now. Uh, but we are taking our experience with entrepreneurs, applying it to the corporate space. There may be no better person that exemplifies both of those than Jake Miller. Jake, not from State Farm Miller, who we are having on the show today. So we're excited to chat with him. Um, I have to give my uh, my shameless plug. How many newsletters does everyone subscribe to every day? Probably not that many because we all get enough emails. I'm just asking you to give me a shot every two weeks to show up in your mailbox. And I promise I will make you laugh. And I promise that I will help you with your career. And I promise that I will help you geek out on corporate innovation. You can only to those three. And if you don't like them, you can unsubscribe. www.awesomeinc.org forward slash venture labs i never can remember it's forward slash or backward slash yeah that's fair I, so if you if one of them doesn't work try the other one cool. i trust you guys so anyway back on task uh jake we're excited to have you here um i think garrett might have mentioned we've had you on the show before 
if you need to run back to that episode. January 14th. January 14th. 2020. Here's a little bit of a teaser about Jake if you have not listened to that episode. So Jake spent nearly 15 years, we're going to say nearly 15, building his career in innovation within the healthcare space and in retail health. Um, He has one of our, as I mentioned, favorite combinations, which is experience in both corporate America, but now in the startup world. He is now running and growing Toggle Health, which is his, his baby, his startup. But today we're going to focus a little bit more on his experience in corporate America, in corporate innovation. So, Jake, I'm going to pass it off to you. Please say it better than we did. Tell us, tell us about yourself better than I did. I started off working for a startup, and then I uh, transitioned over to corporate America after getting my MBA. Uh, I wanted to figure out how to run businesses better. And so one of the very first jobs I got was uh, working for Target Corporation, uh, developing retail clinics for them, which back in uh, 2006 now, uh, was cutting edge. Like these <laughs> clinic clinics in a store just sounded crazy. And Minute Clinic, had, Minute Clinic had just opened at that point, if you guys are familiar with that brand. Uh, and they had got acquired by CVS Health. And CVS, uh, Target decided that they didn't want CVS drugstore in their stores at that time. It's funny because they've since sold their pharmacies to CVS. Now, my, my pharmacy is CVS in a Target. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they didn't want them in there, though, at the time. So they had these holes in the wall. They had uh, 12 holes in the wall where they used to have minute clinics. And so they decided they were going to create a team to build their own clinics, Target clinics. Hmm. And I was the second employee brought on board to do that, this internal innovation. And uh, it, it was pretty incredible. We grew it from zero up to 32 clinics in two different states uh, before I got promoted over to be one of six people running uh, the 1600 pharmacies. It was the eighth or ninth largest retail pharmacy at the time. And I was constantly trying to do these cool, innovative things, but entrepreneurship is really hard. I don't think a lot of people give enough credence because there's this massive bureaucracy to make these large organizations work. Target at the time was 385,000 employees, I think, with 1,700 stores. 385,000? Yeah, pretty massive. Now, most I guess of them I'm not were, thinking were, you have to have the people running the stores as well. You generally have somewhere between 150 or 250 people running each of each of the stores. And if they had 1,700, you just do the math. And yeah. then you have all the DCs, you have all the headquarters folks. Uh, so there's a massive bureaucracy, and, and Target was relatively top-down in its approach. Most of the innovations came from the vendors, but then were approved uh, by the CEO himself, and there was this walkthrough process. So hmm. guys like me trying to do something that was new uh, in healthcare in the space, constantly uh, bumping my nose up against that bloody front edge. You know, it was that... It's that uh, bleeding edge, as they, they call it. And <laughs> the so cutting, I would cutting bleeding edge. Yeah, cutting, cutting bleeding edge, whatever it is. And so I started looking around because I was trying to do these innovative things uh, for the pharmacy business like I had for the clinic business. And I, I, I was comping. I was looking at what all the competitors were doing out there, CVS, Walgreens. And mm-hmm. I saw that Walgreens had this corporate innovation uh, team that they were using to put forward a lot of their new innovations. And I was trying to borrow slash steal as much as I could from what I could tell publicly from their process. And ultimately, I got to know the team, and then I got recruited to come over to their team and uh, came on board to turn around their 400-something retail clinics uh, by introducing new services. But uh, you were just originally 
call on them to learn from them, fact find, find best practices? I would, it, they, in retail, they do this thing called comp shopping, where you actually go and you walk the store or you go shop, you literally go shopping. Right. And, right. and so I was doing as much comp shopping as possible. I was visiting locations. I was listening to their speakers. I was just trying to learn as much as possible, partially to justify to the bureaucracy at Target that some of these needed changes should be done. And so I got to know them really well. And I'm like, man, these folks seem to be doing it right. Uh, this corporate innovation team at Walgreens, they had carved out a team of roughly 100 people out of this 112-year-old, at the time, bureaucratic company that was opening up a new store every 17 hours. And if you can imagine Seven, what kind of... Not even every, once a day, every 17 yeah, hours. Yeah, and they had over 300,000 employees. So they had close to 8,000 locations, 7,000-something locations at the time. They were opening up a new store every 17 hours and anything that was aberrant, anything that was different from opening up those new stores, the entire culture of the organization would just kill. So new ideas did not get to see the light of day. Hmm. And the senior executives, the, the CEO level, uh, they realized that there's only so many new stores we can open, so much white space at what they referred to as Main and Main, which was their strategy. They were gonna be at Main Street and and in Maine downtown in every single mm. place in the United States. Uh, but they're running out of white space to build. And so they're like, okay, we got to get our same source sales up. In order to do that, we have to start innovating. Uh, and so they knew the old playbook was getting ready to run out in a year or two. And so they created this team of 100 plus people. They carved out the space to where new ideas could have enough time to, to get mature enough that they may be able to be transferred to the main organization and then leverage the massive distribution of that retailer to to make a lot more money. So my job was to come in and look at all the new ideas and figure out which ones would work the best and figure out the best way to move them forward. And either it was creating new products, new services, figuring out how to take other parts and pieces of the company and put them together in new and different ways. Uh, but that was my gig and it was it was my dream job for a number of years until Ultimately, they went through this massive merger with this group called Boots Alliance out of Europe, hmm. and they ended up killing the entire innovation team because really? it was it was not um, it was not core to pharmacy distribution, and that's the strategy they were going to. So, okay, that's interesting. Let me back up. But pre-acquisition, though, so you were you're at Target, which I'm going to make some broad statements. They may or may not be true, but Target sure. is trying to launch their own clinics somehow fearful of an M&A with CVS or of some sort. And you well, they, they just know CVS, because they had acquired Miniclinic, was going big into this area and okay. they needed to do something. So then you transfer to Walgreens and I'm not, this is not pitting one against each other, but what you obviously left Target to go to Walgreens, yeah. going from one corporate side to another. What, what were some of the differences of what were they doing well, doing poorly, maybe either of them? Um, and, and both are fantastic organizations. Sure. Target, and, and here's one of the big differences in retail and organizations in general, it, it's how decisions are made. Uh, there are, are you more of a centralized decision maker or are you a distributed decision maker? Hmm. Target was very much a centralized decision maker. And because of that, they had high standardization across all their stores. You walk into one store, it would look a lot like the other in a totally different city with different surrounding populace. Uh, you always get hit by that kind of popcorn smell as you go in. You know, there's yep. not much signage. Yep. They don't have a lot of in-aisle display. 
It's a very clean look, very highly stylized. Then you go to Walgreens and uh, there was a saying at one time, I'm trying to remember what it was, but stack it high and watch it fly, I think was the term. Because the <laughs> store managers, if they got merchandise in, they would just pile it on the shelves and and it would work for them. They had these really high gondolas, which are the, the shelving units, and they would just stack it higher and somehow they would sell. And if there was a winter storm, the, the managers could suddenly put out the 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 hats and the scarves instead of the flip-flops that they were supposed to put out which target the the stores didn't have as much localized ability to do that so you saw a different level of innovation at both corporations because of the decision making um, outside of that there was also a structure at walgreens because they had this realization early on from the senior leadership that they needed to carve out the space so they created a corporate innovation team and then we started creating processes which were pretty much like habits that we could follow to to crank out these innovations. And, and at the time, Target did not have that. And so going to this new place, it was how I thought it needed to be done to be more successful, to where you didn't have to just have somebody heroic inside the organization making it happen. There was an infrastructure and a place and things to facilitate. There was budget, senior support. So it was all the stuff that you needed to make this stuff happen in a big bureaucracy like these retailers were. We have been working with Gray Construction, or rather Gray Inc. recently, and one thing that they've talked about, so they they started out as a small company and have scaled quickly over the last few years, and they're trying to maintain this sort of entrepreneurial founders mentality, but the more people that you have and the more that you grow... Um, they sort of anecdotally have mentioned that ultimately it comes down to, do you know the right person to just kind of pass your idea off to in the hopes that they've got the clout and the connections to also make it happen? And it's not a very democratic process, right? You have to know the right people and have the right personality and connection. Whereas instead, if you can create this sort of structure, if you can create uh, a system where innovation can happen, then that that's more ideal. Well, let's say it's a, a new client of, of yours. And let's say it's not like Gray, who's been around for a little while and you guys have been doing this, but somebody who's doing this for the very first time, they've realized, hey, I could see some changes happening on the horizon. If we don't change how we do things internally and create new opportunities, we're going to be dead. So we got to do some things differently. So now there's a, a the reason for change. And as long as there's senior support, and pretty much it has to come from the CEO or, or the equivalent level to make it happen. Um, once they have that, then they could start to do the flow down and create the, 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 the organizational structures. But the, the main thing is, is, you know, folks like your clients are trying to create this. The, the main thing they need to realize is that they're time limited. Uh, this any organization has its bureaucracy. It has its antibodies that kick in when something new or different comes around. And you generally, if you're creating a new innovation structure, you have about 18 to 24 months to prove your worth or else you know, the, the other folks in other functions who you're siphoning resources away from will start to poo-poo you. There'll be a lot of politics. There'll be backstabbing, like even in the nicest organizations, it's just how humans work. So you're time limited. So one of the main things you have to do as you're starting to look at your process is realize that, okay, innovations take about five, seven, 10 years to really take root. The big ones that make a difference. You don't have five to seven years. You got two max. So you better get going and figure out a couple tricks to, to hack the system. And there are a couple of them that worked really well for us. And I, I, I borrowed these ideas from 
like Shell Company and a, a few others that have really strong corporate innovation functions. But one of the, the easiest to do is to take dust-offs. So these are things that got put on the shelf either because they, they were developed and brought out at the wrong time or they were sidelined because of other priorities or it's been the pet project of this one guy in operations, but he never had support. There's a lot of times uh, great ideas that are just sitting there almost ready to come off the shelf. You got to dust them off, maybe carve a couple of corners off to make it fit your new world. But there's an opportunity for you to take these out and, and, and get them implemented relatively quickly, as long as they're good ideas. And then uh, another one that works really well are mashups. So you take two different things that have worked well before, you put them together in new or different ways, and suddenly they're, they're a new type of innovation. I always like to say it's kind of like putting chocolate and peanut butter together, and suddenly you have a Reese's cup. Hmm. And you could take that out to the world and sell it as a Reese's cup, and and now you have that type of innovation that, that moves relatively quickly. Um, another one that works super well is just to borrow from other industries. Mm-hmm. So it's something that the automotive industry has done forever. And now you're able to bring it into the healthcare industry for the very first time. And this thing's been done forever. So it's relatively robust. It's from a technical perspective, low risk. And the only risk that you're taking on now is you're moving it to a new industry. So you're able to move super fast. And then uh, the one that I really like, and this goes back to your structure, is creating a portfolio approach. Um, there's really three different types of innovations that corporations look at. And I'm borrowing this from a Harvard Business Review article. There's core innovations, and, and people invest about 70% of their time in core innovations. And these are the ER innovations. This is like, we're going to be a little cheaper, we're going to be brighter, we're going to be smarter. Uh, if you think about beverages, this would be Coke coming out with vanilla Coke or Diet Coke or things along those lines. So those are all the ERs. They're really close to what you currently do. They're close to the core. And then you have the core adjacent ones. And these are the ones, like I was mentioning earlier, that are new to you, but not new to the world. And people invest probably about uh, 20% of the resources in these guys. And then finally, you have the transformational ideas. These are the crazy ones. These things are brand new to the world. They haven't really been done before. Uh, people invest about uh, 10% of their time, if I did the math right, 70, 20, 10 in each of those uh, categories. What's really crazy is if you look at the returns on those investments, it's the exact opposite. The one that you're, the transformational ones that you invest 10% of your resources in, you actually get 70% of your returns out of. Um, whereas on the core side, you only get about 10% of your returns out of your 70% investment. And this is an average across all industries that they've looked at. The old 80-20 rule. You can't get away from the 80-20 rule. Yeah, but if you look at that data, you got to say, well, what the hell, why the hell don't they just invest all this stuff in the transformational world? And it comes down to the risk tolerance of the individuals making the decision. And this goes back to what Clayton Christensen has said with his disruptive innovation book that um, you know, these large organizations, the bureaucracies that support it, all the decisions, that kind of spinning flywheel, that if there's anything aberrant kind of gets killed, the antibodies kick in, whatever the analogy is that you're using, um, you know, sometimes the big corporations, because of the risk tolerance of the individuals inside of it, they just can't get it done. All the incentives are set up for different reasons. So not only do you have to create a portfolio process, but then you have to carve out space and create the appropriate incentives so that people don't get killed if they try to put a new idea for it. How are they bonused? How, uh, what is the reporting structure? Is there budget to take forward these ideas? 
are you having to borrow budget from other places? If you do, how do you deal with the uh, political uh, fallout of that situation? So you really have to you have to do both. So I like I like I love these categories. I also so let's dive into this a little bit deeper. And let me so let me say this and you tell me what you think about it. So I feel like if you want to jump straight to transformational, to put it bluntly, you should probably just go be a startup founder, right? Like just exactly. quit, just quit your job and go be a startup founder because you're never going to make it. Or work with the startup founders. I, I think that's the major lesson that I've had having now worked on both the startup side and the uh, right and the organizational side. The, there's too much risk inherent in these transformational things, and we have seen it with big companies before. But generally, it's like a founder CEO making a hard decision that if they were a public company would never would never go forward. The board, yeah, board board of yeah. directors isn't going to pass it. So that said, is there sort of a innovation theater game to be played of get a couple easy wins with these dust offs and these mashups absolutely to then say listen give me 12 to 18 months and i'll get these done and then does that buy you time yeah yeah that's a that's a really great insight and ultimately what we did with the portfolio approach is to use a baseball analogy i know uh garrett likes those um you 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 get some singles and doubles so these are things that are probably closer to core and core adjacent even though they don't give you the awesome returns, you got to prove to the organization that you can execute because that's what matters most to this, this execution-based organization. So you get a couple of singles and doubles and you prove that you could do it. You start building momentum. And in the background, you're working on a couple of the swing for the fences home runs. And I successfully did that at Walgreens. It, it, we didn't know how to do this. I borrowed uh, this process from, as I mentioned, some executives at Shell who had been kind enough to, to publish an article or two on their process. And we created this process and we won, uh, we won the belief, I guess, uh, the support of the operational organization so that then we could go on and we could take a couple big risks. And what ended up happening uh, in our first year of doing this, it was something like a $22 million increase. Um, the majority, I think it was, it was 12 million or 14 million of that came from one idea that the organization tried to kill no fewer than 10 times. It was a swing for the fences wow. thing. And the executives were saying, hey, this won't work, et cetera. And, and the tactic we used on this, it was a lot of fun, is we, we used the take away their excuses tactic. Uh, and, and this was a big bet for me. And I probably wouldn't have done this if my team, who was awesome, my team had been working on this for a while and trying to get it to work. And they believed this was a great idea. And I go, okay. I can only take so many bullets starting this, this thing up, guys. Uh, is this one that I should take? And they go, yeah. I go, okay, when it starts going south, that means you're going to have to work overtime to get this stuff done because <laughs> I'm taking the bullet. And they go, absolutely, absolutely. And so we put forward our, our best approach, and it had a bunch of holes in it. It just wasn't working. And so we went, we had a stage gating process for our, we created an infrastructure to have decisions and to communicate to these senior executives. I can get into that in a little more detail in a sec, but we would go in front of these folks and they on a monthly basis and we tell them all the things we tried to do and how we'd execute and they'd see some gaping holes and they'd bring them up and we would knock off one or two of those each time. And then we'd bring it back and said, okay, do we kill this or do we move it forward? Well, if you guys could do one, two and three, then we'll let it keep going. And we just kept on taking away the excuses <laughs> until they finally were like, well, okay, go ahead and do it. And then it ended up being the single most profitable hmm. um, thing that we put out there. And it, it worked for us. And it allowed the, the bureaucracy, if you will, the leadership 
to be able to accept the risk in a tolerable way. Um, so it was a lot of fun. Were you delivering wins in the meantime, if that makes sense? Well, we, we had the singles and doubles going on the other side. It was a portfolio approach. So we had other projects. We were probably running five to eight concomitant new businesses or products at a time. And by the way, this was not a large team. This was a core team of mine that started out as three people and then ended up to be uh, closer to five people. So not large in terms of our core small team that was working with this, this clinic business. Uh, but we had cross-functional, we had 70 cross-functional partners. Because wow. we had to have legal, we had to have the risk team that was responsible for setting new insurance policies. We had to have the marketing team. We had to have the clinical education team. And once you had all these teams put together, um, you know, we had lots of resources, but um, it was really a small team of champions making it happen. So I've got a statement, and then I would love for you to talk about the stage gates. I feel like if there's anything I want, quote unquote, corporate innovators to take out of what you're saying, it's that, I mean, A, you had to find a company that had the corporate innovation team. So that that was a big win, it sounds like, for your career. But even within yeah, I, that. I jacked, I jacked into some processes that that saved me a year or two to make things happen faster. So you, you found that company. So like, A, you have to have the team. A company has to prioritize enough to have the team. But then I think, and I, I want people to hear this in an encouraging way, not discouraging, you still have to play a little bit of that game. Just a company having a corporate innovation team doesn't mean that they're down for all transformational ideas. You have to hit the singles and doubles in order to hit the home runs, but, it, but it's doable. You can play that game and get it done and then hit the home runs like if you bide your time well enough. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. And one thing that kills corporate innovation, a lot of people don't get this, is that the corporate innovation guys, um, guys and gals, they um, many times take the fun stuff away from operations. So the operations <laughs> guys, if, if it's a dust off, they've, been, they've had these little pet projects on the side. And they're like, this is the fun thing. This could be new they and exciting. They would love to do that. And then you take if, it if from this, them. <laughs> and, then, and then corporate innovation functions create it and they centralize all this. And so they're left with all the boring stuff that mm -hmm. won't get them recognized in the organization. So one thing that we did very successfully is we figured out how to partner with those folks and gave them the credit. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do this, here's what happens with corporate innovation. Let's say you're about two years in, you've proven out, you've gotten all these, these various things going, and now you're ready to release it to the world. You've run your pilots. This thing's looking really good. You know, it has a lot of promise. And then it goes nowhere because you have no one to hand it to because you haven't been working with them for two years to transition this thing across. And so they don't want it. They don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole because it's not theirs. There's no agency or There's ownership. No ownership, right. Oh, heck yeah. And plus, they want you to die anyway because you took away all the fun stuff. So That's what I feel about Garrett. Garrett gets to do all the fun stuff here at Awesome Inc. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we created the StageGate process in a, in a three-tier communication process, kind of as the engine to make it work. And the analogy I love to use, or I like to use now, uh, but I think the guy's name is Andy Jassy, the guy who just took over at Amazon for Jeff Bezos. I believe that sounds right. I, I can yeah, fact check the, you while I keep talking. Yeah, but yeah, please correct me in case I'm getting it wrong. But yeah, the reason he was successful is he came on and uh, he was, he was uh, uh, shadowing uh, Jeff Bezos. And then he was then put in charge of the new releases for their technologies and their new ideas. And all of the business owners were peeved because this guy that was supposed to be running this technology, everything was behind. It was all running slow, et cetera. Like nothing was successful. And this guy had this dog on and he finally convinced the executives to invest and to create an engine that could take these new things. And instead of creating everything from scratch entirely, 
they would have this engine that they could kind of tap new ideas into, and then they could go more, more quickly and more successfully because you weren't recreating the same stuff each and every time for each and every project. Mm. And ultimately, AWS has become, uh, they, they found out that the, this thing was hugely successful for getting new internal projects going. And then they realized, hey, we could sell this to the rest of the world and mm. take what was a cost center, make it a profit center, became the most profitable part of Amazon. And now the guy who started all this way back when is now the new CEO of the biggest corporation in America. Remember the day I found out Amazon doesn't make money by what I purchased through them? <laughs> they primarily lose money on all of us. Yeah, but they, they sell a lot of services through a, mm -hmm. AWS. Yep. And I think there's a good, a good lesson here for corporate innovators that they can create that engine. Mm -hmm. And we, we created a mini version of that uh, when I was at uh, Walgreens, and it was hugely successful. We, we had a, um, a five-part stage gate process where uh, we would have like just conceptual ideas at first, and we had to make it past that gate. And, and it, for anybody who's not familiar with StageGate, it's really you, you set up some decisions and structures ahead of time to where you have to pass that gate in order to earn the resources to move on. And especially for waterfall type development that, that happens for things like uh, services or some types of software, but largely physical products, uh, it works extremely well. And so you, you would have all these crazy concepts come in just at the first gate. So you'd have the CFO who'd come in and go, we should offer dental services in all of our pharmacies. And you're like, okay, we've looked at dental three times before. We got to figure out how to tell this guy that, okay, this, this <laughs> is a good idea, but we have these, these 30 other ideas that appear much better. And so we created a balanced scorecard approach for scoring these ideas. And we did it in such a way that uh, we would take the information we'd have, we'd identify, uh, we, we'd whiff check it at the first step. And so we had like a one or two sheet thing and we'd say, okay, whiff check all these. Let's force rank is them. Whiff check some, is, that a, is that a smell test? Is that what you're you trying to tell You just smell me? it. Okay. You're like, does this stink or doesn't it stink? <laughs> it's, it's the onomatopoeia of uh, a smell test. It's a whiff test. What's the aroma of this particular <laughs> item? Yeah, and you, you just go, okay, does it pass muster or not? And then you go to the next one and you do a slightly deeper dive. And this is where you start to reach out to like legal. Is there a giant legal landmine you didn't think about? Huh. You reach out to the operations team. Hey, can this even be done? And you create a, just a, a very quick look at the feasibility. And finally, you go to the, if it makes it to the next gate, you get resources and you may set up a pilot and you do a very small scale one or two store test. And if you do that right, you, you can successfully learn a ton of stuff. And so we would do that. And then in order to facilitate that process, we had a, a three-part communication uh, hierarchy that we used. At the very top, you had the, the project sponsors. These are the ones that would say, okay, we're going to see if this thing said, these are the executives. This is the steering committee level. And we would have monthly meetings with them and we would have readouts. And that's where we would talk about red, yellow, green. Are we red, yellow, green on this stuff? Are we good to go? Do we need your help? Do we need resources? We would transparently talk about each of the projects. And then at the, the med uh, middle level, and this was the, the level that kind of held everything together, these are the functional leaders. So for instance, you know, it, it, most recently in Humana, I had, I forget how many cross-functional leaders, it was some like 20 or 30 oh, different wow. leaders for all the cross-functional areas that had to be touched when I was opening a, a new clinic business. And so those are the folks that you really need involved because they have the individual team resources uh, at the third level. And these are the folks who are actually doing the work. They're, they're the ones that are going, if you need coding done, they're doing the coding. 
if you need design work, they're doing design. Uh, so you really need those three levels. The most important one, though, uh, was that middle level. And we would have weekly, sometimes bi-weekly meetings with those folks. And we had a rule. It was the you have to have your butt in the seat rule uh, because mm. these guys have a ton of other things to do. It's like, OK, we need butts in seats. Yep. And we actually one of the things that made us most successful at Walgreens, it was crazy. We they started a new uh, execution based uh, tool that they I think was called 4DX. And they, they were creating this and we had to create a charts of leading and lagging indicators. And we had to put them on our wall and share it with everyone. And we decided that our biggest uh, leading indicator of whether or not we'd have success was engagement. And we measured butts and seats. Did they show up for the meeting and were they were prepared? Hmm. And we would show that to everybody. Anybody who showed up red a couple of weeks in a row, the senior executives would see it. And that, that uh, I don't know, sunlight, created a lot of uh, everyone suddenly didn't want to be read. They, they, and they right. definitely didn't want to, you know, they definitely didn't want to show up in that meeting and be talked about as a negative. And so everyone made a real effort to support corporate innovation because of that transparency and communication. Uh, so yeah, went pretty well. It's such a great example of how you, the, the team component has to be there. It, the dynamic, the oh, support, yeah. you cannot corporate innovate on your own in a silo, like you said, because A, you'll, you'll piss everyone off and B, you'll miss things. You'll miss what is actually required to make ideas happen. And I think a lot, a lot of the companies we talk to that the confusion is around how do we form teams around ideas? And I think you're giving just such really practical advice on it's not, it's not just even, some of it is personality. You need the right personalities, but you need the right expertise in the room. You've got to have marketing. You've got to have the coders. You've got to have the merchandisers. You've got to have people who know what it will look like on the floor and if it's actually going to be adopted by consumers. Everyone's got to be there. What, what's really interesting, a lot of people really want to help support innovation, but they're being pulled in a thousand different directions. I remember our clinical education team, they were read something like three or five weeks in a row when we implemented this new metric and they were so worried that it was because they were looking bad. I go, guys, I know you're fantastic. When you're there, you're fantastic. You're some of the best partners we have, but there's just not enough of you. We need to go back to the senior leadership and say they need to resource you more so your team grows hmm. or carve out what you're doing because if they believe this is important, it needs to be resourced and we're going to support you in this. So you can, you can do it in a punitive way and sometimes you got to do the smackdown. I don't think that that should be your number one strategy. I think it should be, listen, if you can't get this done, we need more resources here. And so let's have that conversation about either prior, your leadership prioritizing this or finding us, you know, we may have to do some new hires. Yeah. It just opens up the right conversation to where suddenly you're advocating for these teams to get resources when maybe they haven't been able to and they've been overworked forever. So suddenly you look like the hero as the corporate innovator versus the zero. Uh, who's or the negative who's taken stuff away from because well, you're able to show data back to the CEO and say hey you said you value corporate innovation but these teams are under resourced and so they can't they can't do that and I can't do it without them rather than feelings you're giving data back yeah. back to uh, leadership there, there's a lot a lot of organizations though the the senior guys are like well these guys aren't busy what are they doing and then right. you know we're working hand in hand with them we see that they're there and they're engaged but something's still missing that's when we talk about, are they the right resources or do we have to create new ones, et cetera. But uh, yeah, yeah, it uh, can really work. I've done such a poor job at limiting your content because it was so good, but I'm going to stop oh, us okay. there. So tune back next oh, week. Okay. Um, but just talk a little bit about startups and corporate companies working together. Um, maybe we'll make up yeah, for the definitely. shortness of that one with the length of this one. Perfect. Maybe. Garrett, 
Can you, can you tell a joke on the spot real quick? Let's hear something. It's, it can't, it's not going to be clean, so we'll just cut to next week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that's it, guys. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Awesomings Podcast. And another quick thank you to Lee Rosevere and a few members from our community who provide the music that you hear in this show. Lastly, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, all that jazz. Or even better, come on down to our space. Come be a part of our community and get plugged in. And let's start something awesome together. You guys rock. We'll see you next time.